don't think they're going to stop him. 93.3 and AM 560. KWTO. This is the Elijah Har Show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at 933KWTO and stream us on the 933 mobile app. Welcome back to KWTO. If you've been watching what's going on in the Ivy League schools recently, Penn president resigned, but the Harvard president is staying on. Joining us now on the show, graduate of Harvard Law, Will Scharf. Will, welcome back to the program hate being identified that way, but thanks a lot for having me, Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to identify you that way because there was this big story about how a bunch of Harvard alum have signed a letter saying that the president of Harvard should stay despite the testimony on Capitol Hill. I thought you might have a different opinion. Yeah, and you know, there are a lot of us that are organizing to try to get her out. Uh, and there, there are two things here, right? So the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, she said some ridiculous things when she was testifying on Capitol Hill uh, about anti-Semitism, about her response to anti-Semitism in the wake of the, uh, the attack on Israel. But then it's come out in the last couple of weeks that she's also a serial plagiarist, that half of her published academic works contain uh, major instances of plagiarism that would get any other professor in the country fired. So the fact that she still has a job to me is just disgraceful. And it shows you how debased an institution Harvard has become. Uh, this is a, you know, an institution that in the early Republic was a, you know, a great exemplar of everything that it meant to be American. And now it's the exact opposite. You know, it's, I, I got to try to figure out what's the difference between you know, both Penn and Harvard are Ivy League schools. At Penn, they drove the president out. They didn't do it at Harvard. What was the difference between the two? What what caused change at one and not change at the other? You know, it's a good question. I think part of it is tied up into this broader issue of, you know, DEI, that, that the president at Harvard, she's a career DEI bureaucrat. She's made her whole career uh, on the back of, you know, sort of DEI initiatives and diversity initiatives. Um, they just hired her a couple of years ago. I think that there is a sense among some at Harvard that pushing her out could create an even greater crisis for the school. But again, you know, plagiarism is very serious. If any student, if any young professor had done what, what she did, plagiarizing articles this way, you know, they'd be, they'd be out on the street in, in 10 minutes. And the fact that she's not being held accountable uh, really speaks to the value uh, that elite institutions have come to place on this sort of DEI cult. Uh, And it's, you know, it's destroyed their value as educational institutions, in my view. You know, my favorite response to the plagiarism story was that I think Harvard came out and said, well, she didn't actually plagiarize, but she's just going to update it and include citations which to me seems like we're going to fix the plagiarism that already occurred. Yeah, I mean, if, if when I was a student at Harvard Law School, if I did what she did, if I just copied paragraphs from other people's papers and put them in my papers, uh, I, I would have been expelled. You know, there's no question about it. That's plagiarism. That's not allowed. But she's risen to a high enough level where they're willing just to let her get away with it. And it's, it's crazy to me. But a lot of alumni are organizing around this. A lot of us are 
are trying to get some good done there. Uh, but more importantly, you know, you look at elite education in America today or so-called elite education in America today, and it's become so just totally consumed by left-wing identity politics, by the DEI cult. I mean, it, it really begs the question, uh, should, should the government start taxing their endowments? Should we be taking a much, much harsher line against at least some of these elite institutions? Uh, and I think a lot of people are coming around to that point of view. You know, you're right about that. I also, though, you know, in, in this larger conversation about um, what's going on in the Middle East, in my opinion, it's the first time we've seen positive progress um, at one of these schools. Seeing the Penn president actually be forced to resign is the first time that, that essentially we've seen cancel culture bite those on the left when it comes to an academic institution. So I was sort of pleasantly surprised that we saw some some fallout from that Capitol Hill testimony. Yeah, and you know, I think there are some leaders in higher education who sort of see the writing on the wall. They understand that their goal needs to be building a great educational institution and not indoctrinating. Uh, and I think that hopefully that, that pen firing will send a message nationally. Uh, you know, it's worth noting here in Missouri, we have an outstanding head of the University of, of Missouri system, Mun Choi, who's just laser focused on building a great educational institution and has been uh, so resistant to political pressures and so resistant to sort of the crazy ideologues on his faculty. Uh, that's an example of how higher education can, can work right. And I think we need to be encouraging that in all of our state institutions and obviously nationally as well. Talk to us a little bit. You called the, the DEI, this diversity and inclusion stuff, you called it a cult earlier. Walk us through, you know, that, that sort of thought process. Yeah, you know, I think that their, their belief system is, is fundamentally nonsensical. You know, they've bought into this idea that the whole world needs to be separated into uh, oppressors and oppressed. And they draw distinctions based on sort of the meanest characteristics, you know, basically um, race, uh, some aspects of ethnicity, et cetera. Um, it, it, there's no rational basis to it. If you read, uh, you know, Ibram Kendi, uh, if you read sort of the key texts of this movement, uh, they, they don't make sense. Like they're, they're wildly irrational and just badly written. Uh, and yet this is swept through uh, American culture, American society, uh, key institutions, big business, banks, education, et cetera. Uh, I don't think there's a way to accurately describe it other than the fact that it's a cult. Uh, this is a cult that has uh, core tenets uh, that are irrational. Uh, but that they will nevertheless push and push and push. I think what we've seen in corporate America is a great example of this, where you have these sort of DEI apparatchiks in HR offices uh, that end up running these massive companies because everybody's scared of taking them on. Uh, but when I talk about it being a cult, that's really what I mean, that they have a core set of beliefs that are wildly irrational, that are not you know, empirically supportable, that aren't based in reality. Uh, and they view their objective, their mission as as propagating that set of beliefs uh, through society. What's the what's the response from conservatives? Is there a governmental response to these entities uh, aside from just ah, we're not going to give you any more any more funding? What's the what's the legislative or gubernatorial response to these Ivy Leagues or academic colleges 
taking this left leftward tilt? You know, first and foremost, I think we have to insist on on race neutrality and on meritocratic systems of hiring and promotion. You know, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision uh, in in SFFA v. Harvard, which said that uh, you can't use race in in college admissions, uh, I think we need to be more aggressively uh, pushing that legal principle in society today. You know, I stand by what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that he wanted to live in a country uh, where his children would be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. I think that's a core American ideal uh, that we should be insisting on. So just yesterday it came out that Clayton Public School District, district up in the St. Louis area, was advertising for jobs uh, for teachers of color only. That is illegal. We should call them out for doing so. Uh, I hope the State Department of Edge, I won't hold my breath on this, but I, I hope Desi does something about it. And frankly, our state legislature should investigate how a, a public school entity uh, is, is going about discriminating on the basis of race in this day and age. But I think if we insist on race neutrality, if we insist on meritocratic principles, if we insist that, uh, you know, that all of these uh, entities, all of these bodies uh, just do what they're supposed to be doing, I think we can really reset American society and take power back from these radical leftists. You also made a comment earlier uh, about potentially taxing their endowments. For our listeners who don't know, walk us through, why are those endowments not taxed now? Um, so it, it's the, ta- the taxation applied to these big college endowments uh, is, is very low, um, and, and their required spend is very low. So most private foundations typically have to spend about, I think it's about 5% uh, of their asset holdings a year. Uh, These college endowments don't face that restriction. So what's happened over time is that schools like Harvard, like Princeton, like Yale, like Penn, they've just accumulated billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. I mean, they don't actually need to charge tuition. They don't need to raise more money. They don't need any of that because they're just sitting on ungodly amounts of money in the bank. And that insulates them from from public pressure. That insulates them from governmental pressure. So the idea of taxing the endowments, what we're really talking about is a basket of policy uh, solutions to that problem, one of which would be just to require them to spend down a certain portion of their endowment a year. And then more aggressively uh, would be increasing the tax rate on, on university endowments. Uh, not allowing them just to accumulate this massive amount of money totally tax-free, especially if we think that they're not really serving a public purpose anymore. Will, you're uh, running for attorney general in the state of Missouri. Tell us a little bit about the campaign um, as you travel around the state. The campaign's going great. You know, everywhere we go in the state, we're hearing basically the same thing, which is the conservatives are really dissatisfied with Jefferson City. They're dissatisfied uh, with with the lack of real conservative policy victories, uh, they're dissatisfied with the way the state's being run. Uh, you know, I say it all the time. If you think this state is being really well run, if you like the leadership you're getting out of Jefferson City, I'm probably not the right candidate for you. But what we're hearing from conservatives all over the state, I mean, this is true in the north and the south and the east and the west, wherever you go, we're hearing this deep, deep dissatisfaction with the way things are going in Jefferson City with the lobbyists and the special interests and the folks who, who really are running the show there. Uh, and I think our campaign offers a, a great alternative to that. And I think we're going to have a really, really good 2024. 
Will, one thing we, we usually do at the beginning of the interview, but I had to clarify why I brought up your Harvard Law degree. Um, <laughs> one thing we usually do at the beginning of the show is we ask our question of the day. Question of the day today, it's a especially tough one for people running for office, is what's something you've changed your mind on in your lifetime? You know, I want to say something, Elijah, because I want your listeners to understand something. Every other time I've come on your show, I have not known the question of the day before I came on. But today, I didn't ask for it, but someone associated with your show sent me a message with the question of the day. So I did not come into this question blind. I had about five minutes to think about it. I just want to be totally... I love the uh, transparency. Apparently, I'm going to have to fire my producer now. It's, it's really, really important to me that your, your people know that on no other occasion have I been tipped about the question of the day, but today I was. Here, here's a, a real policy one. I could dodge this and just sort of give you something out of my personal life. But when I was coming up through high school and college, I had sort of bought into this idea that, uh, that free trade was this unalloyed good, that we shouldn't have tariffs, that we shouldn't have restrictive trade policies. That was just sort of the conservative mantra that free trade is the best. That's what we need to be going towards. Free trade with China, NAFTA, all that stuff. As I got older, particularly as I went through law school and I started actually reading foreign trade treaties, I realized that the idea that there's any system of free trade in the world is just, is just false. And that a lot of America's foreign trade agreements, uh, basically since 1968, have been really, really unfair to America. Donald Trump is absolutely right when he says that we signed on to some terrible trade deals. I think that's true of, of the way that we normalize trade relations with China. I think it's true of, of NAFTA. I think it's true of really our trade relations with most foreign countries. So that's an issue I've kind of turned 180 on. When I was younger, I just sort of thought, you know, cut tariffs to zero, let things work their way out. Now I think that a much more a controlled trade policy is is a really important thing for America to be prioritizing. I don't say this to gush, but I I really enjoy that answer because it's very thoughtful and and philosophical. And most candidates, as you mentioned, dodge on this question. I, I I've asked this question once about a year and a half ago on the show, and the the candidate who was on the show said he's changed his mind on Brussels sprouts. That as a kid, he hated them. As an adult, they're a delicacy. And I was like, that's a great answer, but it's also a total dodge on the toughness of the question. Um, I'll, tell you this, I'll tell you the secret with Brussels sprouts, though. So when you're roasting Brussels sprouts in the oven about 10 minutes before you pull them out, top them with fresh honey. Those things come out. They taste so good. It's basically just eating candy. Uh, that's how I made myself like Brussels sprouts at about age 30. Uh, I, I guess at statewide Lincoln days, you're going to have to have those in your, in your suite. <laughs> Will Sharp, if anybody wants to follow We're along excited. with your campaign, how do they find you on social media? We're on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, truth social at Will Sharp. And our website is votesharp.com. Very good. Will Sharp. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Elijah. That was Will Sharp. He's running for attorney general Garrett. Given him the question of the day in advance, what kind of show is this? Me? Well, how do you think it was me? Well, he said it, somebody associated with the show. Yeah, it could have been. Don Luzader secretly had, had, had let people know. Could have been Joel. Maybe maybe Brother Noah True. somehow got a hold of it. We don't All know. All possible. I'll tell you what. I will. 
Whoever's responsible for this, I will find them, Elijah, and I will make sure that they pay. I love it. I love it. All right. We're going to be right back. Uh, Lots more to come. Stick around. I saw the sun begin to dim and felt that winter wind blow cold. A man learns who's there for him when the glitter fades and the walls won't hold. 